Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today, we're going to be talking about judicial integrity, the integrity of the courts, and specifically when a judge or justice must step aside in the interests of that justice, recusing themselves due to bias, perceived or actual. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we have a perfect guest for the topic. We're joined remotely by Alicia Bannon of the Brennan Center for Justice, where she leads the judiciary program. Alicia, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure. Today we're going to be talking about recusal, but why don't we take a step back and look at the court itself. I remember for much of my life, the Supreme Court was the most popular of the three branches, at least in terms of public opinion, but a lot has changed there. The Supreme Court is facing record low approval ratings, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I think a lot of it does have to do with the dramatic turn that we've seen the Supreme Court take, particularly the Dobbs decision coming out this this past term. Also, the growing politicization of the judicial selection process. I think all of that has has done some some real damage to to public trust in the in the court as an an institution. So uh, surveys suggest that public confidence in the court is at record lows. There was a survey earlier this year um, by Pew where only 16% of people thought that the court was keeping politics out of its decision making. Those are not very impressive numbers. That's not a very good statistic for a body that, you know, their entire bread and butter is public trust, that people think that even when you disagree with a decision, that you still have to follow it. And so this is a this is a very serious moment for for the court and for the judiciary, which is a departure from the judge as umpire uh, model where judges are just how do they say calling it as they see it balls and strikes. I I think that some of those assurances can ring hollow, right? Because it's not just calling balls and strikes. It depends on who your umpire is. And I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, different umpires are have dramatically different visions of the law. And we have a supermajority today that by many measures is really out of step with you know, mo- most of, of of mainstream Americans in terms of, of how they're approaching a lot of, um, you know, critical legal questions and the protection of important constitutional rights. We've had a couple of really high profile cases involving recusal. I mean, these are front of the newspaper type cases. First, uh, at the Supreme Court with Justice Thomas and a potential conflict involving the January 6th insurrection and his wife's Uh, communications with the White House. The other, uh, more recently involving President Trump and whether or not there might be inappropriate bias uh, by hearing a case in front of a judge that he appointed. We'll talk through both of these situations, but why don't we first get a definition on the books? What is the actual rule when it comes to recusal? When should a judge step aside? That's a great question. The The key is whether or not a judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. 
And so that's, that's not, that's not according to the judge's own subjective interpretation. Well, am I truly biased or not? Rather, it's a question of if a reasonable person is looking at this situation and knows the facts, could they have a real concern that that judge might struggle to, to decide that case fairly? There are some specific rules. So, for example, cases where there's a financial, um, where, which involve financial interests of the judge, of a judge or family members involvement. There's some specific rules that are kind of bright line. You definitely have to step aside from cases in those instances. But there's also that broader catch-all where if, like I said, if somebody could really say, I'm, I'm, con- I, I don't know that you can be fair, in those instances also judges are expected to step aside. I guess maybe a, a quick threshold um, question, is perception enough? Or does the judge, does the judge's opinion of whether or not she can be fair uh, does that matter? It's a great question, and I think it actually highlights one of the challenges with how recusal is structured, both at the federal court level as well as in many states, where judges are usually the the judges of their own biases. So if you look at what the legal standard is, it's not a subjective standard. So the, the legal standard says it doesn't matter if in your heart of hearts you think you're not biased. If a reasonable person could say that, you know, there, it may be hard for you to act in an unbiased way, that is enough to require your recusal. But as a practical matter, in most most states and in the federal courts, the person who is making that decision is the judge, him or herself. And as I think we all know, we're often bad judges of our own biases. And it can often be hard to step out of a situation and say, well, what would a reasonable person think when it's actually involving you? And so the, the standard is not whether a judge thinks they have a bias or not. But I think as a practical matter, that is often how these decisions get made about whether or not to step aside from a case. Why don't we take a quick look? There haven't been uh, a mountain of cases on the topic at the Supreme Court, uh, but maybe we could look at a couple of of cases where recusal or the decision whether to recuse oneself uh, was addressed by the Supreme Court. Why don't we start with Caperton? I think that's one of the most... Uh, interesting examples and illustrative examples of some of the the dynamics at play in in cases involving judicial recusal. Wonderful. That was Caperton v. Massey. Caperton v. Massey was a case coming out of the West Virginia Supreme Court. And in that case, so West Virginia is one of 38 states where judges stand for election as part of their system for, for choosing judges. And in West Virginia, you had a, a, a multi-million dollar verdict that was on track to be appealed to the West Virginia Supreme Court. And at the same time that that appeal was bent pending, you had a judicial election going on. And what happened in West Virginia was that one of the, the litigants, the owner of a company involved in that multi-million dollar verdict, poured over $3 million into that state's judicial election. Wow. He created a pack with great name for the sake of the kids. And and that pack spent $3 million in support of one of the justices' elections. The justice won that seat and ended up being the deciding vote in um, turning in 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 overturning that multi-million dollar verdict. And the justice, there was a request that he step aside from the case, that he recused himself, and he said no, because I think I can be perfectly fair and unbiased in making this decision. 
it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court on due process grounds. And so I'll note, you know, I, I was mentioning the the legal standards for judicial recusal. This case was actually being considered at a much higher bar. So not just kind of what does the law require, but what what is the bare minimum for constitutional fairness in a trial? And the Supreme Court said that in this instance, there was a due process violation, that in this instance, the due process clause of the Constitution required that justice to step aside from the case. And the legal standard that the court established was that when there is a serious risk of actual bias, and again, not based on a judge's subjective view about whether or not they're biased, but if somebody looking at these facts could say there's a serious risk of actual bias, then the due process clause of the U.S. Constitution requires that judge or that justice to step aside from the case. And so that case was sent back down to um, West Virginia, and a very important precedent was set. Now, again, Caperton is a floor, not a ceiling. So many codes of conduct can go further than Caperton and have even more onerous and demanding standards for when judges have to step aside from cases. But Caperton does set that important floor. I like the way you describe it as a floor, not a ceiling. This is the constitutional bare minimum when it comes to whether a judge or when a judge must recuse. And this case, wow. I mean, I think of gerrymandering as politicians picking their electorate. This is a case of a litigant picking electing their judge. It's a really interesting set of challenges in the 38 states that use elections as part of their system for choosing judges. You know, something that's that's very striking is most states even now, post Caperton, um, more than a more than a decade later, don't have clear rules about when judges are required to step aside from cases in the face of major spending by litigants or others closely associated with those cases. So, you know, obviously Caperton does provide that floor, but interestingly, most ste- most states haven't stepped up to provide clearer guidance or you know stronger protections than that. Even though I think if you if you ask most people should a judge be hearing a case involving a major campaign contributor, they would be shocked that that's even a question. (laughs) Yeah. What was the ruling in that case? Was it a unanimous opinion of the court or was it a close call? It was a it was a closely divided court. It was a five four. Um, it was a five four ruling coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Roberts had a lengthy dissent. Um, interestingly, he posed a series of questions, almost a parade of horribles, about what Caperton might might bring in terms of you know all of these different difficult recusal questions, um, judicial conduct questions um, that that might come out. N- none of that proved to be to be the case. If any. Thing I would say Caperton has been underutilized as a case. People rarely file recusal motions in part because it is a sensitive thing for, for litigants because you are raising the question of, you know, an appearance of bias. And, and particularly if the judge declines to recuse, that can be an awkward situation for the, the person or the, the, the lawyer that brought the motion. And that was 2009. And we have a very different court today. I wonder if you think a similar case would meet a different outcome in today's court. It's an interesting question because it is a very different it's a very different court. I don't know that I have a great prediction. Something that is interesting about cases involving the judiciary is that 
it can sometimes be difficult to predict how the Supreme Court will respond because I think as as judges themselves, I think there's often um, they they have you know sometimes idiosyncratic and often at least very strong views about some of these questions that don't necessarily track um, typical ideological lines. So just to give another example, Justice Chief Justice Roberts was um, in the majority in a in a five four ruling in another in a campaign finance case involving judicial codes of conduct called Williams U. Levy Florida Bar, which upheld bars on personal solicitation of campaign contributions by judges, saying that that was a that was a acceptable limit to put on judges free speech, um, free speech rights. And there, you know, just Chief Justice Roberts is someone who in in most every other campaign finance case has has been very critical and suspicious of any limits on First Amendment on, on First Amendment rights, but here he voted in support of of those restrictions and an entire bi- opinion rooted in in judicial integrity. So finding a very specific government interest there um, and and on upholding this campaign finance restrictions. So I think it's just an example of how sometimes judicial elections and questions of judicial integrity can can hit differently than other other kinds of cases that the court's hearing. I could imagine it being hitting a little closer to home as well. Exactly. Exactly. We talked about Massey. Another important recent case was Williams v. Pennsylvania. Uh, Maybe you could share a bit about the facts of that case and what, if anything, uh, it established. So Williams v. Pennsylvania was a case that was, uh, it was a death penalty case in which, um, involving the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, where a justice on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, the chief justice, had previously served as a prosecutor and had been, um, had been involved in in the earlier prosecution of of the person who whose whose death sentence was was upheld by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. He wasn't the line prosecutor, but it was it was under his watch. And so the the question was whether that kind of direct involvement as a prosecutor required um, that that justice to have stepped aside from the case when sitting on the state supreme court, and there the court held that in fact he was required as a matter of due process to have stepped aside from that case. Again, that there was a serious risk of actual bias, and in in that instance, it he was not the de- the justice was not the deciding vote in the case, but the court said that that didn't matter. That it was enough that he was part of the deliberating panel that issued the ruling. And that he um, and that that kind of personal involvement and personal knowledge of the case was simply a, a, a conflict per se that that raised that specter of risk of actual bias. Interesting. So it didn't matter that it wasn't it wasn't a close enough call that his vote would have uh, that the lack of his vote would have on its face changed the opinion. It was well, hey, he might have been persuading people as well. His, his participation was enough to be inappropriate or improper. 
Exactly. And if you think about it, it makes sense. These pa- the whole reason why courts are made up of, you know, more than more than one judge or one of the reasons is to allow for deliberation. You know, the whole premise is that they talk to each other, they learn from each other. That's why we um, that's why values like diversity on the bench are so important. And so I think built into that is that we have to think that you might be impacting some of your your peers when you're when you're participating in the decision making process. Professor, why don't we talk through some examples? I mean, your cases, the cases that you brought up uh, started with a couple. One is if if the judge was financed by one of the litigants, that's probably enough that they should step aside. Um, but maybe I'll kick the tires on that one a little bit as well. I, I'm assuming that that might not be the case if I only donated $50. Exactly. Caperton was very careful. The the majority in Caperton was very careful in really cabining its reach. So it made clear that it was very fact specific based on exactly what had happened in West Virginia. So one, the fact that it was a huge amount of money, it was $3 million. And if you looked at the overall spending in that election, it was a quite a meaningful percentage of the total amount of money that was that was poured into that race. That was a very relevant consideration. The fact that it happened as a case was pending, so that it was very clear that the court was actually going to be hearing this case. The fact that the justice was the deciding vote in the case all of those were deemed relevant factors to the overall assessment that here there was a due process violation. What about another type of financial entanglement? What if the judge, or I suppose justice, has a financial stake at play? Uh, here I'm imagining uh, I, I'm a big shareholder in, in one of the corporate litigants, and I'm the one deciding the case. Well, so there, there are very clear, bright, bright line rules. So if you have some kind of investment, you own stock in a company that's a litigant, you are supposed to, as a matter of law, step aside from, from that case. And in fact, there was quite a big scandal coming out of the judiciary this year. A major Wall Street Journal investigation looked at federal judges' um, dockets and decisions and identified hundreds, several hundreds of instances where federal judges should have, as a matter of law, recused themselves from cases and failed to do so. It seems, you know, from the investigation and from interviews with some of the judges that were involved, it wasn't a story of nefariousness so much as it was a a deep failure of judicial administration. So basically, these cases weren't being identified. There were real flaws and gaps in their case management processes that meant that they weren't identifying these conflicts of interest and therefore weren't stepping aside from those cases. Um, It was a real black eye for the for the judiciary. It's actually prompted the passage of a new law. So, you know, as you know, it's very hard to get things passed in in Congress these days, but there was a a new transparency act that, a judicial transparency act that did pass this year that imposed some new requirements, including creating an online database to make it easier for litigants to actually search and identify these potential conflicts of interest. And it's something that the judiciary itself has said they are sort of taking on and doing new trainings etc. But it, it, like I said, it was, it was a real black eye because it, it was widespread, hundreds of cases, and you know, suggested that there wasn't the kind of rigor and seriousness that, that you would expect in, in identifying potential conflicts of interest. 
So, uh, Alicia, let's talk about personal connections. Where's the where's the limit there? Uh, when should a judge or justice be recusing themselves if they're too close to the issue at hand? Well, so family relationships can definitely be a basis for recusal. And in fact, there's a, a federal law that applies to all judges, including Supreme Court justices, that says that you know a justice is required to, or judge is required to step aside from a case if there is a, a family connection, including um, if, if a family member might be adversely impacted um, or benefited from, from a particular ruling. And so I think this has been very front of mind coming out of the uh, coming out of revelations in the January 6th hearings about um, Ginny Thomas's involvement in in sending text messages etc to the White House there there was a case that went up to the to the US Supreme Court about raising questions about those the release of those texts as part of that investigation and and Justice Thomas did not recuse himself from that case, even though it had apparently a very direct connection to his wife and his wife's interests. So in this case, uh, for those who haven't watched the January 6th hearings or, or read, um, read up on the, on the topic, Jenny Thomas was co- communicating with uh, President Trump's then chief of staff. And, and what was going on there? Ginny Thomas was having a series of text messages with um, with Mark Meadows, but in advance of the insurrection, around the 2020 election, etc. And uh, those text messages were at issue in a case that was going up to the to the U.S. Supreme Court, whether or not those had to be released as part of the um, congressional investigation. And so the, the Justice Thomas was hearing a case that directly implicated the interests of of his wife. And so, you know, it was, in fact, a fairly shocking instance where plainly that was a kind of conflict of interest, a kind of personal interest in an outcome of a case that should have required recusal. And even though there's a lot of rules that don't cover the U.S. Supreme Court, and, you know, we need more, the court, for example, doesn't have to follow a, a code of conduct. But in fact, the law does, there, there is a law of recusal that does apply to the U.S. Supreme Court. And these that those provisions, I think, pretty plainly covered Justice Thomas hearing this case. Well, again, I mean, here, uh, we are making some assumptions that that Justice Thomas was in the know, was in the loop on these text messages. But if he did, or if he was made aware of it, then it's your position that he should have recused himself. Well, I think he should have recused himself. And I think, in fact, that the standard is a little bit higher than just did he know. I think there's a, a duty of inquiry. And so it's not enough to put blinders on and say, I'm, I don't know what's happening in the other room. There's a question of was he, was he on inquiry notice? Did he know enough about his wife's involvement to, uh, to have been, to have had a duty to ask questions and determine if there might have been such a conflict of interest? Now, it is, I guess, theoretically possible that he was so in the dark that he was not even on that inquiry notice. But I think in that instance, given the facts and circumstances of this case, at the very least, it would it, w- it would have been very important for him to publicly 
put forward those facts, explain what he knew and when he knew them, and also make a commitment now with the facts that he knows going forward that he would step aside from any future case that would implicate his wife or other family members. And unfortunately, none of of that has happened. That's an interesting procedural point that the recusal, it's not a, a, a single opportunity to recuse. A judge or justice may find out in the process of hearing a case that they actually can't go forward. Uh, does that ever put them in, in some type of balancing uh, issue where to not proceed might be an undue burden on the litigants involved? Well, sometimes judges will it will raise conflicts in the midst of a proceeding, notify the litigants, and there can be um, opportunities to waive. So to say, we are we are comfortable going forward with with you. Um, you, you know, and, and there are also it depends a lot on the context. You know, there are other principles at play, such as a rule of necessity. So sometimes there are instances where maybe an entire court has a conflict. You know, some. Sometimes it's, you know, maybe it's a, a challenge to a law that affects the entire judiciary or it, you know, there's something where everybody, you know, it involves uh, something that, that everybody, you know, everybody owns a phone or something and it's about a phone. So there's there's some instances where that rule of necessity can come in and a, and a court can say just under these circumstances the in order for justice to be done, in order for this case to be heard, we're, we're going to have to go ahead and um, hear this case. So there are some some principles, both of waiver as well as kind of circumstances where a, a judge can can overcome a recusal issue because of of other other interests at play. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk to you about the rule of necessity. I wasn't envisioning the case where it's people with cell phones may have a bias, but but rather small towns where there may only be one judge or areas where there may not be. Uh, there may not be a number of options to choose from. What happens in those kind of cases? It's a good question. It's very state by state and in some instances, locality by locality. I I think those kinds of considerations often go into play in terms of how particular states structure their, their recusal regimes. I think it comes up more often in the context of state courts and state law than the federal judiciary. Um, but I think, you know, in, in some instances, I think there are accommodations where, where the rules may be less, less onerous, um, or, or there are sort of less demanding rules in, in jurisdictions that are, are smaller. There's also instances where there are, opportunities to borrow judges from other jurisdictions, use visiting judges, et cetera, as another way to avoid those kinds of conflicts. When it comes to whether or not a judge must recuse themselves, a a recent example uh, has raised a question that I don't think I had thought of in the past, but what if you appointed the judge yourself? Does that create some type of conflict of interest, should you then become a litigant before that very judge? It's a really interesting question. It's it's not one that there's there's real case law on, at least to my knowledge. So I don't think it's a question that's actually been tested, at least in any any deep way. Uh, I I think how you would think about that question would be to look 
to the Caperton standards, which would say, you know, would a reasonable person looking at the facts in front of you say that there's a serious risk of actual bias under these particular circumstances? You know, I think things to think about would be, you know, was there any reason to believe, for example, that there were promises or assurances made as part of the selection process um, where that person, where an observer might really question then if that person could um, could be fair. You know, I think something that that Caperton highlighted was, you know, concerns about a debt of gratitude where, you know, were there, would, is, was there something, and I think it would be a very fact dependent and fact intensive question, but was there something about the the way that that person reached to the bench, was appointed to the bench that raises those questions? I think as a general matter, just for the, the run of the mill appointment, the run of the mill case, I, I don't think that there would be likely, like, I don't think that standard would likely to be met. There's certainly no rules in the code of conduct or or in the relevant statutes that explicitly require recusal because you were appointed um, to the bench or nominated to the bench by, uh, by a litigant. But I think you would still have those due process protections and those kind of catch-all protections about what would a reasonable person think that under the right factual scenario, you know, it's possible that, that there could be a concern about bias. I mean, without going too much into detail, I wonder if we could make a, a quick application to the, the case in Florida involving President Trump. Here, it wasn't, I, I may be mistaken, but it wasn't that he appointed a close personal friend, but he did appoint Judge Cannon. If you were, if you were giving a quick analysis, I don't know if you're guest lecturing on con law, what, what would be some of the things that you would be weighing as you looked at that? Well, I think, again, I think as a, as a general rule, the simple fact that President Trump nominated um, Judge Cannon to the bench would not be enough to trigger any kind of recusal requirement. And, you know, in particular, I think the fact that the Senate plays an advice and consent role, you know, I think would further distinguish this case from Caperton because they're are kind of multiple players. There's multiple um, level, layers of, of involvement and participants in the process of, of a person actually reaching the bench. I think that the questions that that you would want to, if if you were if you were raising a recusal claim, you know, the sorts of facts that I think you would be looking at would be, you know, was there something you know, w was there any assurances that she, um, you know, was made or was asked to make about how she would approach cases that involved President Trump? Did she make any promises? Was she asked to make any promises? Did um, President did the president say anything about her and her nomination that suggested that he expected that she would uh, protect his interests? So I think you would be looking at at those sorts of facts that would to to help assess you know would a reasonable person think that there was a serious risk of actual bias here because of the relationship or because there was a particular you know debt of gratitude um, at, at play here uh, I think generally speaking the mere fact that he nominated her though wouldn't be wouldn't be enough it's just so fascinating when it comes to a president as a litigant because it, it's just such a unique set of circumstances. And it also, you know, we go back to that necessity argument, you know, 
by necessity, um, it's very likely that the judge in the case either voted for or against the litigant. So, I mean, there you had you had a judge weighing in on whether or not they thought, yeah, maybe not whether the person was good or bad, but whether they were good enough to lead the nation. Um, and, and, and maybe that would be telling in some ways. I, I assume that voting alone would also not be enough <laughs> to, to require someone to recuse themselves. That, that, that's right. Voting alone wouldn't be enough. Uh, you know, Justice Justice Ginsburg, when when President Trump was first running for president, made some very pointed comments about him that, um, you know, that that I, I forget the exact words, but saying, you know, how, how terrible she thought it would be if he became president that she apologized for that, you know, I think were, were the kinds of comments that, you know, judges should really be staying away from to avoid creating any kinds of appearances of, of a conflict of interest. I, I think one of the things that's really hard about judicial ethics is, you know, at some point, at some level, the court is having to ask litigants, sometimes in really high stakes cases, cases of broad public interest, trust us. You have to trust us. And to some extent, we do. We have to trust the system, trust the oaths of office, trust all of the, the, the systems and appellate processes, et cetera, to, to say that, you know, we can, we believe that ultimately, you know, we're, we're more likely than not going to be getting fair, fair outcomes, you know, that the system is designed with enough, enough protections that we can be confident in that process. Um, and, ethics, I think, plays, ethic rules play a really important role. They can also only go so far. There's also, I think, a lot that we need to ask judges to be doing simply as public servants and as as people who, you know, should be really invested in building public confidence in, in the institution that you can't really necessarily legislate line by line. And so, you know, I think something that's been very interesting in recent years is there's been a lot more activity by judges and including justices that isn't quite political activity. They're not campaigning for a, a person for um, a, a political candidate, but they're, they're, I think, been increasing comfort in public appearances with politicians, with other people who have kind of a partisan relationship. Justice Justice Gorsuch has made appearances, you know, Justice um, Barrett. There's been a number of um, justices who have been, who have made appearances with prominent politicians who have attended events with um, organizations that are frequent litigants in front of the court, none of which are, are formally barred, even, you know, well, the code of conduct doesn't apply to the U.S. Supreme Court, but even if you looked at the code of conduct that applies to lower judges, none of those are probably formally barred by the, the code of conduct, but all of them kind of can contribute to a sense that the court may be too closely tied to to partisan actors and to politics, and I think can do real damage to um, to the court's legitimacy. Some of that is re requires a legal response. We should have a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices, and we should probably firm up a lot of the rules around things like public appearances. But I think part of it too is how judges are understanding their role in their job, and are they seeing themselves as public servants that sometimes might have to turn down opportunities that they might want to do because of, you know, what what that might appear to the public? Or are they seeing themselves in ways that that make mean that they're not doing some of that self-checking? I mean, I don't envy 
the lifestyle of a judge. Uh, sometimes I do. I, I look at the 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 impact that they can have, the ability to do so much good, and and really weigh the scales of justice and make uh, impactful, important decisions. But then when I I think through how isolating it can be in so many respects, how even actions that for the rest of us would be seen as, uh, you know, a, a sign of a, a good citizen can get them into hot water. It is an awesome responsibility to be a, a judge and, you know, particularly to be a U.S. Supreme Court justice. And I, I think that's true. It's it's your 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 conduct is is under a spotlight. You um, and I think one of the things that that is can be very hard for judges too is that you're limited in how you can you can respond and speak speak back right so you may be criticized really forcefully for particular activities or cases and judges are are limited by those ethics norms in terms of how much they can really engage in a back and forth and sometimes defend themselves and so it, it is a it's a challenging situation. I think I, I think I come back to the the notion that it, it is a public service to be a judge. And so I think, you know, it's a very high status position. It's a very powerful position. And with that power also comes those those responsibilities. I might have seen that in a, a super superhero film as well. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta bring Spider-Man in at least at least once in every every conversation. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> On that note, I guess, are there any other key areas uh, that we should cover for when judges should be recusing themselves? You mentioned, for example, prior statements with regard to Justice Ginsburg. Maybe we could touch on that. And then if there's, you know, if there's any other you'd like to throw in the grab bag, I'd love to hear. One very important rule or, or standard that that limits what judges can be saying publicly is to one make any comments that suggest that you have previous you, you have already decided how a case should be ruled on before actually hearing the case or especially making any kind of promise or assurance that you're going to rule in a particular way um, and, and then otherwise to just make any comments that that suggest that you you may have a bias in a particular case where you couldn't actually hear that case fairly and and all of that comes to the same you know to, to the same point which is that we need to be confident that judges are approaching each case with an open mind based on the law and the facts in front of them. And judges have a duty to avoid giving any kind of public impression that that is um, that that's not the case. Now, that's not to say that judges need to, you know, completely erase, you know, every everything they've ever read or thought before they hear a case. But um, that's obviously not possible. But there there is it's an important value that judges are supposed to always be open minded and open to changing their mind as new arguments are brought before them, new facts are brought before them. And so th part of how they're supposed to make those assurances is to avoid making any statements that suggest that that's not the case, that they've already decided how they're going to rule in something or that they have some immovable opinion or bias that's going to mean that uh, uh, somebody coming before them wouldn't be able to get a fair shake. All right, a break for the lawyers listening who want CLE credit for this interview. The code for this interview is all sevens five sevens that's seven 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 
And now back to the interview. We spoke about some of the rules in place or the, or the cases or the types of, of situations where judges should recuse themselves. What about when they don't? Let's talk a bit about disciplinary procedures. I guess, what do those look like uh, across the country? So they, they vary quite a bit within the federal court system. One key thing to understand is that the dis- disciplinary procedures don't apply to the Supreme Court. And so for Supreme Court justices, even if there is a plain example where a justice should have recused themselves, the the only kind of real actionable remedy would be impeachment, would be, um, you know, congressional, you know, taking taking those steps to um, to remove a justice from the bench. There's no other kind of internal disciplinary procedure in play. For the lower courts, there is a disciplinary procedure. So if a judge did not um, step aside from a case when they were you know, otherwise required to do so, there are there is a process for filing disciplinary complaints and having hearings. And there can be some sanctions that are imposed on on judges. You can't remove a judge from the bench, but you can require things you can you can publish, make public that um a judge did fail to to meet certain ethical requirements and can have other sorts of of public facing um, public facing sanctions could remove them from a case, etc. Um, in the state level, the procedures vary quite a bit. In some states, disciplinary procedures can include removing a judge from the bench, um, and then there can be all different levels of sanctions, both public and non public. I'm not sure if you've looked into it, but is there data on these type of Disciplinary measures, are states actively pursuing discipline like this? It's a great question. It's it's not something that I've I've studied in depth. I'll say one of the challenges to studying it is that uh, there's there's in many places there's there's very little transparency in terms of that information. So, for example, in many instances, complaints against judges are not made public. Usually, there's in in most states, for example, it's only if an assessment is made that a complaint was was true and was sort of sufficiently serious that in those instances it's made public, but many complaints are not actually made public at all. And so it can be very hard to to actually assess, you know, how well is the system working? And, you know, are there particular judges that are, you know, regularly having complaints filed against them? Those sorts of oversight mechanisms can be very, can be very hard because there's a lot that's often kept out of the public eye. And we spoke about the constitutional floor, I suppose, when it comes to judicial recusal, but there, there's more advanced or more rigorous rules in place. Uh, are, are these the codes of conduct for judges? Well, so there's a couple of things that are in, in place to, to ensure um, to, that impose various ethical requirements and can require recusal in, in specific contexts. So if you look at the context of the federal courts, there's a federal statute that applies to all judges, including U.S. Supreme Court judges, justices, that, um, that does require recusal when a reasonable person could be concerned about bias and, and has some specific instances, um, bright line rules about when recusal is required. Is that related to the model rule on disqualification, rule 2.11? 
Well, so separately, you have this code of conduct, which also includes both, which has guidance on recusal, but then also has a whole host of instances where um, it, it, it puts constraints, for example, on the kinds of political activities judges can do, um, public appearances, uh, other other sorts of ways that judges are comporting themselves, all, all with an eye to ensuring public confidence in the court. That code of conduct applies to lower court judges, but does not apply to the U.S. Supreme Court. You also have in place, as I was saying, disciplinary measures, which can give functionally give teeth to that code of conduct. Those two apply apply to lower court federal judges, but not the U.S. Supreme Court. Separately, if you look at the states, every state has a code of conduct, which applies to all levels of court, including state Supreme Courts. And um, states also have various disciplinary procedures. Some of them also have recusal laws um, that that apply to, to state court judges. So it's kind of a patchwork of different rules that would apply, you know, depending on the, the judge in the court. You mentioned a couple of times that some of these rules and codes of conduct don't apply to the Supreme Court. This is the nation's top court. This is uh, nine individuals making incredibly important decisions with lasting consequences. Why don't we talk about what's different? What's different for them and where are they less restrained than other judges? Well, one of the most significant differences is that the U.S. Supreme Court um, is the only court in the entire country where the justices don't need to abide by a code of conduct. So the the lower federal lower federal court judges to do all state judges do, but the U.S. Supreme Court has no binding code of conduct. They have said that they you know voluntarily you know they look to the lower court's code. They voluntarily try to 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 you know, follow, you know, consider those things, but there's no way in which um, they're bound. And, you know, I, I think it's a real challenge for public confidence in the court and, and the court's legitimacy at a, at a time where, as we were saying, uh, that public confidence is really at, at record lows. Uh, you know, codes of conduct are important, they're important both for providing uh, transparency ex ante before a judge is doing something where you say, okay, these are the rules we're going to abide on, abide by. They're transparent. People can think about them, comment on them, say they're adequate or inadequate, and then judge future conduct against them. Um, they're, they're important as, uh, and then they're also important as, you know, for the judges to have, to turn to for guidance and to have that kind of internal check before you're, you know, making a decision saying, well, you know, does, does this, does this actually Abide, does this actually comport with the, the rules that we've committed to? And, you know, and we see codes of conduct, not just in the judiciary, that we see them in universities, we see them in lots of places. You know, there's a sense that it's really important to say up front, you know, we're committed to ethical standards, and we're going to pre-commit that these are the things we're going to, to do. And if the public has concerns about them, that also creates that opportunity for dialogue and critique and, and reform. When we think about a code of conduct for the Supreme Court, who could establish that? Is that something that could come from Congress, or would it need to come from the high court itself? And would that would would the court imposing a code of conduct uh, would that be okay? Well, so 
The court certainly doesn't need to wait for Congress to adopt a code of conduct. The court could adopt one tomorrow. In fact, a few years ago, Justice Kagan, when she was um, testifying to Congress on other issues, actually, you know, said that the court was considering adopting a code of conduct. But we have yet to see that actually take take form. And so I, I think it is something that I, I hope the court is seriously considering, and, and it, I think it should move quickly to adopt. If the court fails to do so, then I think it would, it would turn to Congress to, to legislate. In terms of Congress's ability to impose a code of conduct if the Supreme Court fails to do so on its own, the the legal question, would that, would that violate um, separation of powers? That is, it is untested. It hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been litigated. I think the, I think there are very strong constitutional arguments that at least some ways of imposing such a code of conduct would be constitutional, you know, that are, you know, sufficiently protective of the court's institutional independence. So, for example, some bills that have been put forward before Congress would simply instruct the court to create a code of conduct for itself or instruct the judicial conference to do so or have a system put in place. Um, and so I, I think those those measures that really give a lot of autonomy to the court to really determine the contours of it are, are really quite deferential to any of the court's institutional prerogatives. And I think there'd be a very strong legal argument that those, that those are permissible. Of course, with all of these things, the final body that would be assessing its constitutionality would be the Supreme Court itself. That was my question for you. Is this, is this a, a, a problem seeking a, a higher body when you're when you're the highest in the land? How do you, who, who weighs in? Well, so ultimately, it is a question that the U.S. Supreme Court would would weigh in on. Um, I think, and Chief Justice Roberts, to be to be clear, has has expressed skepticism about the ability of Congress to impose different ethics constraints on the court. I think one thing that's important to to think about, though, is that you know this is all part of a constitutional dialogue, and we've seen this in a lot of realms where you you know the the court still you know the court still feels public pressure, and when Congress is elevating issues and saying, you know, we we have a real concern and maybe the public has a real concern about ethical issues coming out of the court. Often we've seen that as a back and forth where the court feels pressure and maybe cleans its own house before Congress does it for them. Or there's a back and forth in dialogue where Congress passes something but is perhaps responsive to feedback that the court has given it about its institutional considerations. So these are often, these branches aren't usually operating in isolation when it comes to these um, these kinds of considerations, and I think here where you've you've seen a really troubling pattern of ethical breaches coming coming out of the coming out of the court, I think Congress does have a very strong institutional interest, and I, I imagine the court is feeling that pressure. Alicia Bannon is the director of the Judiciary Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Alicia, thank you so much for your time and walking us through this complex topic. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. 